Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. Yes, it's our regular feature, the Weekly Planet with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Craig, where in the UK are you this week? Well, Cara, hello. I'm uh, visiting Cornwall Wildlife Trust this week. And so uh, I'm speaking to you today from Falmouth, the beautiful little harbour town of Falmouth. And my hotel is right by the harbour in Falmouth. So if you hear any uh, gulls in the background, uh, that's what's going on. So but great to be speaking to you. <laughs> don't be concerned about the screaming. Ironically, we we both got struck down with COVID last week in spite of doing all our broadcasts remotely. So I don't know if our our contagion passed through the airwaves, but we're, we're back in fighting form this week to talk about a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. How about a COVID-related story to celebrate our respective recoveries, Craig? Yeah, well, I don't know whether celebration is the word, (laughs) Kawa, but there was a paper in Nature this week that has said that a a new study suggested that some 40% of horseshoe bats across Asia have yet to be formally described. Now, why is this related to COVID? Well, it is actually that, of course, horseshoe bats are considered a big reservoir of the many zoonotic viruses which jump from animals to people including the close relatives of of the viruses that caused COVID. And uh, it is thought that most scientists think at the moment that the most likely cause and source of COVID was that it jumped from bat species in Southeast Asia, perhaps into another animal, uh, and then uh, from that animal into humans, or perhaps directly into humans. So we know uh, that the wild species have always been this huge reservoir of billions and billions of viruses, uh, but bats in particular, have often been a repository of a lot of viruses that, that, that then transfer into humans. So um, we've said on the uh, Weekly Planet before that, you know, in many respects, COVID is uh, the way in which, for most people in the in rich countries, is the first way in which the ecological crisis has really touched us in a way that we can really recognise. Uh, and it is actually a symptom of that ecological crisis. It's been warned for decades that the, by scientists that the more we cut into and fragment and erode wildlife habitat, the more of these zoonotic escapes we should, we, we're likely to see in terms of uh, disease transfers from wildlife populations into humans. So this is very significant, actually, that it's thought that 40% of these bat species are yet to be described, because actually the more that scientists get to know about the bat species out there, and of course the viruses that they might harbour, uh, then it's better to try and prevent future uh, diseases. But of course, the real thing to do to prevent more uh, pandemics like COVID is, is make sure that we learn to live in harmony with nature and stop eroding wildlife habitat. You know, this was a study that was actually published in the Frontiers of Ecology and Evolution originally, and they used this term that I'd never heard before, which was hidden or cryptic species is what they called them. I like that term a lot. And it's animals that seem to belong to the same species, but they're actually genetically distinct. And it seems like as our abilities to analyze, you know, mitochondrial DNA that comes from the mother and all those kind of technologies to analyze data uh, and DNA are, are coming forward that actually we're, we're able to break these species up into more species, which which maybe seems like just an excuse to add more Latin names to the, to the, to the system, or I'm not sure, but, but uh, I thought, I thought that was really interesting. As if scientists would just want to add more Latin names. Because uh, <laughs> you're Latin. Yeah. yeah. No, but I think you're, you're absolutely right. There is a key point here is that this isn't that scientists are going out there and I, I suddenly identifying these extra species of bats. What, it, what there is, is, as you say, it's this genetic sequencing 
and particularly looking at mitochondrial DNA helps them kind of identify where there's uh, likely to be uh, additional species uh, which haven't yet been identified by science. So that's what this research has, has been doing. And you're right, there is always a huge debate among scientists is, is what makes a species, you know, I mean, the, the, the term that you normally learn <laughs> Uh, when you're at school is that, uh, you know, a species is basically uh, uh, animals that sort of will mate together, but not with another species, you know, that's mm -hmm. the key point. But actually, when you get into subspecies and so on, it, it becomes quite a big scientific debate is what counts as a different species and, and uh, actually what are just subspecies. Um, and ultimately, uh, yes, a lot of scientists have a lot of fun with lots of Latin names through the process. But actually, what, well, what it does matter is exactly for this kind of issue is that if there's enough distinction between two different types of bats, for example, that they might be different species or different subspecies, if then they harbour different varieties of viruses, uh, well, then that starts to matter, doesn't it, to us as humans. So that's why it's important to understand the complexity of the, the biodiversity that's out there. Yeah, really good point. The next story you brought me was also from Nature this week. It's a news feature about a chemical plant in China's Henan province that, that's set to become the world's largest facility for recycling carbon dioxide into fuel. And and this was quite a technical article that I read, quite extensive too. And, and I guess I'm always a little suspicious of dirty industries that are suddenly announcing that they're solving climate change. So is this good news or greenwash, Craig? Well, I think you're right to be suspicious. Um, I mean, you know, what you're seeing a lot of uh, going on in industry around the world at the moment is thinking, uh, how can they turn uh, carbon dioxide into useful products? And that can be fuel, uh, believe it or not, or plastics made from carbon dioxide, or all kinds of other uh, uh, products. Now, that sounds good. And, you know, if it's done in a way that genuinely is good for the climate, well, great. Uh, that is normally when it's uh, dependent on using lots of renewable energy to make it. So, you know, you, the last thing is if, you, if you're burning more coal to turn this CO2 into uh, useful products, then obviously it's not going to be good for the climate. So, it's got to be based on uh, cheap renewable energy to make this happen. Um, and, you know, particularly if it's byproducts of another industrial process, will that be useful? Um, but there is a lot of question marks about whether how useful this will be. And of course, the concern is that it could be that it just sort of perpetuates uh, business as usual for even longer. Um, and uh, or even worse, that it could create new new industrial processes that just add to the problem. There was one expert summed this up rather well, I thought, an expert from Imperial College London. He said, the assumption that we can fix this climate change problem is an economically attractive, in an economically attractive, easy way, is at best is naive and at worst is actively disingenuous. So I think there is quite a lot of uh, scepticism out there. But at the end of the day, you know, if we can make concrete that actually uh, absorbs more carbon dioxide than it is used to produce it, that broadly is uh, probably going to be a good thing. But it, as ever, uh, Carl, it all depends on the nuances. Yeah, it's a really hotly debated subject at the moment. And I noticed that the 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 plant that says that they're going to start to do this in China was saying we'll recycle about 160,000 tons of carbon dioxide a year, which is the equivalent to the emissions from tens of thousands of cars, which sounds amazing. But then when you read the fine print, that's, that's a little over two minutes worth of annual global carbon dioxide emissions. Yeah. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to solve climate change. But, but I was really 
really interested to see the projections for this this sector really is that right now it's amounting to less than 1 billion US dollars for the market for these kind of products but but the prediction is that it'll grow to 70 billion dollars in 2030 and then 550 billion dollars for 2040 so i guess if you were looking to invest some money these kind of carbon capture and sequestration and and upcycling of of carbon dioxide could be a, a, a real potential new industry. Yeah, it could be. Um, and, you know, it could be very exciting. The issue is just all, uh, you know, we never really know what the opportunity cost is, if you like, what the alternative reality could be. So, for example, I was saying before, given the example of making concrete that, that uses up CO2 uh, in the manufacture, which would be, you know, useful if it stores that. But equally, does that mean we're just stuck in old thinking that what we need as a building material is concrete does that kind of stop us thinking about using exciting new materials like like amazing things happening at the moment in uh, uh, new types of wood and, and uh, engineered wood products for use in modern construction uh, and that can actually replace concrete in many ways and arguably would would be more sustainable than even uh, concrete that sucks up carbon dioxide as it were so the danger about this is that we we actually don't innovate enough uh, the danger is that this keeps us sort of just making incremental innovations to industrial processes and the materials we use rather than going for the real transformations we need so i think it's it's useful it's a useful step forward as long as it doesn't keep us stuck uh, where we where we currently are uh, rather than innovating properly yeah i thought it was interesting some of the detractors mentioned in the article Ago, we're saying that, you know, some of this is just to create kind of boutique p- items for climate conscious shoppers. Like uh, you can actually create vodka or diamonds or mm. or some of these like more products, more consumerism, and that it even could lead to this idea of a rebound effect. For example, one of the things they can do is create a, a jet fuel out of this recycled carbon dioxide. But that will make people feel like, oh, I can fly more actually, or I can use more carbon dioxide because it's all being recycled and we end up actually making the problem worse. So it's a it's a risky it's a risky business. It is risky. I think, Carla, we're going to have to work this out by uh, chatting about it more over a carbon-negative bottle of vodka. (laughs) That sounds good. Get your hands on one of those. So while you were using your COVID downtime to read sensible articles like this, Craig, the brain fog was real for me when I had COVID and I found myself drawn (laughs) to an article in Euro News. uh, And this might give some of our listeners a clue regarding what it's about. When life gets you down, you know what you got to do? I want to know what you got to do. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. What do we do? We swim, swim. Dorino singing. Oh, 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 I love to swim. Dorino. When you want to swim, you want See, to See, I'm going to get stuck now with that song. Now it's in my head. Sorry. That's a well-known scene from Pixar's Finding Nemo, and we're playing that because of this incredible story, actually, about goldfish, supersized goldfish threatening native species in the region of Canada. And I think someone should actually make a sci-fi movie about this. But maybe the reason that resonated with me is I actually had a goldfish when I was younger. And we lived in New Orleans and we were moving from New Orleans. And I am pretty sure my father dumped that goldfish in a canal in New Orleans. And it turns out this is a really, really bad idea because this has happened in Canada. And last year, a scientist found several thousand goldfish in a stormwater pond. And, you know, I think we normally think of goldfish as about the size of maybe a little bit bigger than a large coin or something. But these goldfish are bigger than a football. They are enormous. I don't know if you saw the pictures of them, Craig. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're quite horrific, I find them, actually. <laughs> they're not They're not beautiful looking things, are they, when they get to the size of a, 
of football. No, absolutely. And and this is, of course, this is a real problem because goldfish actually are native to East Asia. And uh, the just the same as the problem you have around the world is uh, invasive species. So when you take a species from one environment and one ecosystem which it's evolved, and then you release it into a completely separate ecosystem uh, where perhaps it doesn't have natural predators and so on, then it can cause real problems. And there's so many examples of this uh, around the world, of course. And um, the problem with goldfish uh, released into the wild in Canada is uh, that's not where they're native. They are actually growing to this huge size. Uh, they seem to be very well suited to the environment in Canada. Um, but actually, there's a real concern that they might crowd out other uh, native species, crowd out native species in Canada. And there's such a big sort of availability of these natural resources, abundant food uh, sources in Canada's waterways. And actually, you know, uh, they are well suited to the, the warmer conditions that you get in summer in Canada, um, that they are growing in numbers and growing in size. And, you know, it's a myth, Cara, that it often is talked about that uh, goldfish will only grow uh, to a certain size relevant to the tanks that they're put in. Uh, actually, this is the point. This shows absolutely that goldfish can keep growing if the conditions are right. They grow larger and larger. And it's a real concern, as it is for so many other invasive species around the world. Yeah, they're calling these actually potentially super invaders. I didn't realize that they release these hormones that helps them regulate their size, but it also affects the fish around them. So they're they're competing even more with other fish. And then their their ability to survive in these harsh environments is is really uh, shocking. So, so this particular stormwater pond, you know, it was uh, very low oxygen levels, very high temperatures, up to thirty degrees Celsius in the summer, um, very shallow water, and yet there were twenty thousand of them living in this pond. So, you know, they can really outcompete and outperform the native fish that that can survive in in those conditions. And of course, as the climate is changing, we're going to get more extreme conditions like that. So we're going to see these these goldfish really push out these these native fish. It's just incredible when you look at all the systemic effects from one little tiny innocuous looking species that we have in our in our fish tanks. Yeah, absolutely right. And it's worth sort of saying that there's two principal ways in which invasive species cause problems for native species. The one that sort of everyone's familiar with is that they might go around eating, <laughs> eating other species. And actually, you know, goldfish do eat. What what do they eat in the world? Well, they eat uh, insects and small crustaceans and smaller fish, as well as aquatic plants and decaying plants and animal matter and so on. But actually, as much as anything, as exactly as you're saying, Cara, the the real point is is they might be more successful in that environment than uh, certain native species, which will have evolved together, you know, a whole assemblage of native species will have evolved together and sort of each have their own niche. But the problem is, in this case, goldfish might come in and actually uh, almost assume the whole of this new uh, environment as their niche and be able to exploit it, pushing out the native species. And then you lose that diversity of species in the ecosystem that are so important. So it is a concern and it, and it just goes to show that, you know, much as your maybe your dad did uh, flush your goldfish away, uh, many, many people do that, but it's obviously not, uh, not the best thing to do. Um, and we see this problem right around the world. You know, there's actually been problems um, in the past, I know in some American cities, uh, you know, there's been issues, hasn't there, with alligators and so on that have been flushed down loose and things like that. And in the UK, you know, we have an issue with grey squirrels actually in reverse, if you like, 
uh, our grey squirrels in the UK come from Canada originally, and they have pushed out the native red squirrels uh, that are native to the UK. So, you know, uh, this is an issue right around the world in so many different places. Huge problem, of course, in countries like Australia, uh, where we've actually seen a, a huge amount of um, animals that have gone there that originally came from Europe and again have caused the extinction of many of the native species in Australia as well. Yeah, I'm going to have to share the the image of this on my social media feed to try and inspire that sci-fi movie that I'm sure will be a blockbuster. But thanks for the rundown on the planet's weekly big news, Craig. Great. Speak next week, Carl. Absolutely. After the break, we'll find out how agriculture is impacting our water quality.